Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hi, I'm Mina Kim. And I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum and Focus, a show where we bring you the most compelling conversations recorded live on our radio show, Forum, at KQED in San Francisco. Yeah, it's Forum for all you people who are squeezing in a podcast while you're picking up the kids or running to the store. This has been a great week of shows on Forum. Hope listeners are kind of mashing around, finding them. One must-listen show was with the musician Kishi Bashi. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. And he created a documentary, Omoyari, in which he explores you know, his identity by taking this pilgrimage to the places where Japanese Americans were interned during World mm. War II. And what's so great about this, Mina, is he basically played a solo concert for us. I mean, we talk about what right. the documentary is and everything, but to witness these kind of live performances up close as a fan, it was just so beautiful. Yeah, we used to do more of those before the pandemic, and I'm so glad that you did this because it's totally inspiring me to do this again because there is there's this intimacy that you have with the guests when they're playing for you yeah. that just feels incredibly special. Um, well, the person that I chose, the interview that I chose this week was the one that I had with Viet Thanh Nguyen, who people know as the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist of The mm. Sympathizer, right? But but he wrote a memoir, Alexis, and also a memorial to his parents. And uh, the relevance that I felt like it had with some of the work that Kishibashi has done was that he wrote about his experience of surviving war. He talked a lot about how civilian stories are war stories, not just the stories of soldiers or people who fight in wars, but the civilians who survive them. When he said civilian stories are war stories, I realized, oh my God, my parents are war Mm -hmm. survivors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I knew this sort of intellectually, but until I actually read his family's description... And, and the impact that it had on his mom and dad, I thought, oh, my God, they're totally Korean War survivors. Yeah. They lived through this war, and they had a lot of these scars. And some of the things that he's describing are, are very similar to experiences that I had with my own parents or, or things that they did or habits that they had as a result of surviving war. All right, man, let's get to it. Here's Mina's conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen. When does memory begin? 
That's a question Viet Thanh Nguyen poses in the opening lines of his new book, A Man of Two Faces. He describes it as a memoir and a memorial, but Nguyen also compares memory to a sandcastle or a flickering single frame of film. And it's this fragility, this fracturing of memory that takes center stage in Nguyen's new book as he combs through his and his family's experiences as refugees from Vietnam, building a life and identity in the land of reinvention and broken promises that is America. Min is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sympathizer and joins me now. So good to have you on Forum, Viet. Hi, Mina. Thanks for having me. You know, you signal from the start that Man of Two Faces will be a meditation on memory with those opening lines, but you also signal that this will be a pretty unconventional format. You have these paragraphs that are right justified as well as left. You use different font sizes. There are lots of blank spaces. I'm curious why that felt right for this book. Well, I hope it's a fun book to read, despite the fact that sometimes the subject matter is often quite serious with history and war and the refugee experience and everything that happened to my family. Yeah. I mind what the writer Anthony Viasno so said in After Parties. It's about Cambodian refugees. And he said, you know, we're expected to tell our sob stories. And at the same time, he's telling jokes in that book. And in this book, there's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of play. And so I think that's so necessary that this idea that even if we've suffered through some terrible experience, we can still find some alleviation through our ability to enjoy ourselves and to, to be playful. And so the book is written from that spirit. And I just gave in to my intuition. Um, I just did whatever I wanted to do as it felt right uh, as I was writing that book. And I was following the inspiration of my children who, when they read children's literature, are never taken by surprise by anything. You can do anything in a children's literature book and the kids will just go along with it. Whereas boring adults have very boring conventions and expectations <laughs> about what literature should look like. And this book tries to refuse those conventions. Yeah, yeah, it does. It is playful. It is fun. There are moments when I find myself laughing out loud um, at some of the things that you, you know, put in all caps in the center of the page, while at the same time, you are talking about a lot of things that are deeply, deeply painful. But I'm struck by what you just said. It sounds like the humor, the playfulness is an act of resistance against the expectation of sob stories. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, when you write a memoir, obviously, uh, people expect the sob story. Why else write a memoir unless you're a narcissistic politician or celebrity? Otherwise, you know, if you have a story to tell in a memoir, something probably something painful probably happened to you or, or your loved ones. Yeah. And so, yes, I think part of the lure of the memoir is let's see the trauma. Let's cry. Let's have a catharsis. And then when you happen to be a refugee or immigrant to this country, or you're part of any kind of so-called minority population, you're allowed by dominant society to have one trauma, only one, okay? And we all know what that is for each particular population. And, and when you're that refugee or immigrant or minority, you're expected to tell the sob story of your people. And I, you know, in this book, I do get into sob stories. I do allow, hopefully, readers to cry by the end of the book, as I allowed myself to cry when I wrote it and as when I talk about it um, and when I talk about what happened to my family and my mother and, and Vietnamese refugees. Uh, but it's also very important for me to locate everything that happened to us in the context of the United States and Vietnam. And so the book is not just about sob stories. It's about why do we have these sob stories? What did make us cry? It's not just what happened within our own families and our communities, but also within the larger context of history. 
Yeah, you you say civilian stories are war stories too. And within the context of history, we often treat war stories as really the stories of the people who fought in them, the soldiers. But it was important for you to to really make the point that civilian stories are war stories too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, because I think it's a fact. <laughs> I think the the wars of the 20th century killed more civilians than uh, soldiers. That was certainly true for Vietnam. It's, I think, true today. And so when we think about war stories as only involving soldiers, we are, in fact, compartmentalizing war to a very particular experience and refusing to confront the, the inherent brutality of war, that it has always killed civilians, always will kill civilians. And that was true for my parents. They were not soldiers. They never saw combat. But I'm pretty sure they saw more horror and terror in their lives uh, living in Vietnam for 40 years than a lot of American soldiers did in Vietnam, many of whom never saw combat. And so it's crucial to acknowledge the civilian nature of war, especially when we think about what constitutes anti-war story. Uh, we've, we've, we as a culture have made many war stories in books and movies, and many of them are proclaimed to be anti-war stories, and yet we keep on fighting wars over and over again. And I think if we listen to civilian stories and to what happened to civilians, that actually would be much more, uh, those would be much more of anti-war stories than the stories that glorify deliberately or not, warfare. Yeah. Can I talk to you about um, what really felt like your war wound, which is being separated from your family after you arrived in the U.S.? Your family has this very difficult migration from Vietnam in 1978. You arrive in the U.S., and then you are taken away to be with sort of American sponsors, different sponsor families in Pennsylvania. And you write this incredible line that did make me cry, which was, you write, being taken away from your parents is burned in between your shoulder blades, a brand you do not usually see until you examine yourself with the mirrors of your own writing. What was it like to to re-remember being separated from your family that way? And what do you remember from it now? You know, throughout my life, um, I I think I acknowledge it as fact, what you just described, that I was separated from my family when I was four years of age, but only as a fact. Like, that happened, but it's in the past. We've all moved on. Uh, I'm a functioning adult now. Um, (laughs) My wife tells me that's not true. But anyway, (laughs) I believe here. Um, But, uh, you know, what happened really was that I became a father. And when my son turned four... Uh, it was the occasion for me to think back upon my life at that age. Um, And when he turned four, it coincided with, uh, in in 2017, the Trump administration border policy at the southern border where families were broken up, children were separated from their parents, people were put into cages and camps, and and children were lost. That really (laughs) outraged me, as it did many other people as well. Um, And I thought, Finally, I thought back to my own four-year-old experience and about how it wasn't just a fact. I think, in fact, that it did was it was traumatic, and that the way that I coped with it was to try to forget about it. But it was it was never it was never fully gone, and it was always waiting there to be reawakened. Um, And I felt that looking at what was happening to these families at the southern border, um, they went they they went through and are going through things much worse than I did, and they will never forget what happened to them. And so, yeah, it was. It was emotional that time for me, thinking about our policy as a country, but then also how I would have felt if my own four-year-old son was taken away from me, um, that that I would never, never have been able to get over it myself. 
Yeah. You do something interesting with it, too. Not only do you sort of try to remember what it felt like, but you also try to fill in the blanks to some degree to try to construct what happened um, based on sort of bits of information you have. For example, you reconstruct the moment when your parents agree to let you go and you ask yourself, you know, did they argue? Did they disagree? There, there's something in there where you kind of want to imagine what they're doing. Why did you do that? Why did you need to fill that that blank space with that reconstruction? I never would have needed to fill that blank space uh, if my parents and I had ever talked about it, which we never did. And I, I don't think we were unusual in that respect. You know, I think that uh, so many other refugees who have been through this experience um, have remarked about how there are so many silences and absences in family lore, uh, you know, things that the parents never talked about and the children were always curious about and that the children never dared ask about um, for various reasons. You know, I think I never dared ask about what had happened to them and and to us uh, because one, my Vietnamese was probably not very good enough to, to really cope with the complexities, but two, um, the fear of what kinds of emotions would be awakened, both within me, but then also within my parents. And what right did I have to try to make them relive something that they may have tried to put behind them? Yeah. And yet in writing this book, I thought that it was important for me to at least try to imagine what the situation was like, because it was actually extremely rare. You know, most refugees who left the refugee camps in the United States uh, were moved with their entire families. And then we were the only family I've ever heard of so far in which we were broken up. And uh, I had to imagine, you know, how how did my parents uh, come to that decision? Did they, I don't think they would ever volunteer to do that. So it must have been imposed on them. And I went and I revisited the, the camp, um, Fort Indian Town Gap, where we were to see the barracks and to see the grounds and to see where the, the Vietnamese refugees would have been living and playing and trying to imagine the next step of their American lives. And so that was where the, this reconstruction came in for me. And as you reconstructed it and realized that it was probably imposed on them, this kind of decision, did it reveal to you like what you needed to fill that that blank space of memory with for you? You know, I, I grew up as a very self-involved, self-centered person and thought constantly about, well, what, what did these events mean to me? What did they do to me? And so thinking back to 1975 and that time in the refugee camp, I wanted to think about what that meant for my parents, um, yes. who were, in my mind back then, unimaginably old. And, you know, they were just huge people in my life, obviously, at four years of age. But looking back now, they were only in their uh, uh, late 30s, early 40s, much younger <laughs> than I am now. And it's unimaginable to me in so many ways that they experienced these things at that age when I, at my own age, couldn't imagine myself going through those things and and what kind of decisions I would have to make. So thinking about that time and what my parents must have gone through humanized them for me uh, very deeply. Of course, they're human. But, you know, when when you're sometimes the the, the, the the greatest distance we experience is not with people who are far away from us, but people who are close to us. You know, I took my parents for granted when I was growing up, didn't think twice about what they had gone through. And so it was really crucial in writing this book um, to think deeply uh, about them and, and what they were feeling and what they were thinking. Viet Tan Nguyen. There's a lot more we couldn't get to, so you can check out my full conversation with him on your favorite podcast app. Just search KQED Forum Win N-G-U-Y-E-N. Don't go anywhere. Forum and Focus, back in a minute.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're here talking with Kaoru Ishibashi, known in the musical world as Kishibashi. He's been putting together this project for most of a decade called Omoyari, a tribute to Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II and a plea for a deep, actionable empathy. Talk to me about like what the overarching idea of what you're trying to do, of which there are these different kind of outputs of this kind of core project. Yeah, so as a as a musician, Kishibashi, you know, I put out an album every like two years, you know, and then I think what I wanted to do is I wanted to challenge myself and make, uh, you know, because I was always into film and it interested me. And so, and the subject matter really interested me in particular. And so I kind of tried to create a unified, like artistic statement of, you know, exploratory documentary filmmaking um, with music. And so I tried to write songs and music and improvise violin uh, on screen and then have it as a way to kind of narrate uh, a, you know, a difficult history that I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about. And so the, the spine of it is this kind of pilgrimage that you took, right? So where, where did you end up going along the way? And, and were, you immediate, were you going to the place and just like immediately improvising uh, music? Or was it more, you know, you would go back time and again and then be like, okay, now I understand this part of Wyoming and now I'm going to play? Well, I think we, uh, my initial trip was on the West Coast. So I took a trip with a bunch of grad students. And we went up from uh, from like Arizona. Poston is a is a camp incarceration mm-hmm. camp there, and then you know, and then went up to through Manzanar and the West Coast, and mm-hmm. and kind of got a feel of the the community and the the research surrounding it. And then and then eventually we met you know we had some made some friends in uh, Heart Mountain, Wyoming, mm-hmm. and so that's the place that we kind of used as a central location to go back mm-hmm. to, and and we uh, you know became a part of that community mm-hmm. as we made a lot of friends. What when you were coming into it cold and your first going to see these incarceration camps like what first kind of struck you did anything stand out about those places well sometimes you know it was uh and so i'd bring my violin as a as just in case it was inspiring but also like i knew i had to i wanted to do something artistic you know location-based improvisations and so i think you know what struck me is that sometimes it would be quite pleasant and that kind of disturbed me Hmm. And then, and then sometimes I would it would be not pleasant. Like I chose places to go to, like in the, Arkansas in the winter. You know, hmm. it was quite cold, and so like because I wanted to represent visually what it was like. Mm-hmm. And so I think it it took a while for me to realize that you know it's really about how you feel about it and how the the stories that you bring of the the experiences that you heard and internalized and bringing those to the locations is really what makes it hmm. emotional. Do you feel like it's you're translating almost like what? 
you imagine the the feeling and looking at those sites, you know, in 1943 would have been like. Yeah, I think it's like as the role of the artist is really to kind of imagine and even reimagine these things for in, in the in a contemporary way. And so I think that's I, I did work hard. Like over and over, like workshopped a lot of ideas. And, you know, when I improvised, I'd improvise different things just in case I wanted to talk about something else for the oh, scene. Um, do you want to talk about the title itself, which has been kind of a long-standing interest of yours? Omoyari. Omoyari is this Japanese word about compassion and empathy. It's really just about taking care of another person. And this could be a stranger. So when somebody comes to your house or having, you know, doing putting yourself in their shoes so that you can just do good for them. Yeah. But it's kind of means more than that, right? I mean, it, like, it, I think in the film you say it's kind of putting yourself in somebody's shoes, but also, like, acting on what that empathetic knowledge gives you. Yeah, so I think it's like, you know, if you don't... You could have empathy for somebody, but if you don't really do anything about it, is it really doing anything at all, you know? And I think the idea is that if you have... If you care about marginalized people, then you should really do something, if you have the ability to, to, like, make a difference. Because there's people suffering out there, and... You know, if you have the capacity or the money or the influence, then this is something that you you should do if you really care about other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, you know, uh, I guess it was a year or two ago, we did a show about kind of the profound impact on the, the Bay Area of the internment of, of Japanese Americans. And I, I wanted to play a clip just because um, Yewada was 102 years old when we interviewed her and she's since passed on, I have heard. Um, she was a Berkeley resident, business owner, was arrested with her family, uh, moved through Tanferan to Topaz uh, in Utah eventually. I just wanted to, for us to you know, listen to her voice. When we first uh, uh, got to Tanferan, first they told me that the rumors were that we would, we would be sent to uh, Utah in the middle of the desert someplace and left there and be left there. And then I realized they dropped, they stopped at a racetrack. It was Tamperan. I knew it was Tamperan. I had gone there with my, my husband before. And um, they assigned me to a, a apartment, they called it. And uh, it turned out to be a horse stall. One thing you do not forget about camp is the smell. It mm. stays with you forever. This is Yehwada, former uh, internee of the Japanese concentration camps at Tanfran and Topaz. Um, she uh, died earlier this year, February 24th, uh, 2023. Um, what was it like interviewing people like her i mean you have a, a bunch of different interviews in the documentary yeah i mean it's it's really enlightening and re i'm really grateful for people giving me their time to share their story there's a lot of people it was interesting if they were in their 90s they would have been adults back then and so it was ab absolutely humiliating if they're in their 80s they would have been children back then and so a lot of children have a different perspective you know they're like these camps were um fun for them because they're basically congregating a bunch of kids mm -hmm. you know it was like a camp but you know, and so that kind of confused me for a while. And then mm. I realized that, you know, the parents were really shielding their children from this kind of humiliation. Right. Because what, what would you do? Right. I mean, you'd have to do everything you could to try and be like, it's a, you know, yeah, that's not exactly where we want to go. But, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fun. And the kids are like, well, like, I don't have to listen to my dad anymore. You know, like there's a lot of like 
family structure is just broken down. You know, it's kind of, you know, it's humiliating. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the songs that Kishibashi played in the studio for us is one of my favorites of his. It's called Summer of 42. Here's him describing that song. Summer of 42, uh, this is 1942, um, not 2042 in the future. <laughs> but um, I look forward to your next project. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's one of the things, uh, it's, it's a, again, it's a love song. And I, uh, I kind of struggled to create love songs because it's, you know, it's such a traumatic experience for a lot of people. And um, I think the one thing about this is that I saw a lot of resilience. I saw a lot of um, people who that was particularly inspiring to me and that they were actually human beings and they would fall in and out of love in these camps. And so I think humanizing them then was something that uh, helped me to contextualize it for myself. Yeah. What are the things you wanted The same as anyone Just a hand to hold a little After all is said and done And the days are long and open It's hard to view you That summer of 42 When I was in love with you We counted stars above us We dream of Xanadu We sneak off to the desert The sound of your fancy shoes The first day that I met you I wrote down in my book I'm in love with you I'm in love with you Sunsets, but I remember very few. That summer '42, when I was in love with you. The years have turned to ages, and I know you, someone new. I look for you with every breath. Soldier wreck with solitude. I climb to the highest mountain, and I shouted to have you. God, that was good. Uh, that was Kishibashi playing live here 
uh, in the studio. That was summer of 42. It is just ridiculous what some people can do with their voice on a guitar. Especially at like 9 at night, in the morning. Yeah, at 9 40 <laughs> in the morning. Exactly. Oh my God. Um, I, uh, I'm still recovering from this performance. Um, you know, I, it, there's something just so beautiful about writing a love song in this context, right? I mean, it was challenging for sure. I think it, it yeah. took me a while because the first, my first improvisations, my first melodies were all angry and like difficult. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And they evolved. Yeah, because you know I had to really uh, release an album in my my style. I don't really thrive in angry music, you know. My, yeah, I think of you as like you know joyful. Like I would be like, suns out, windows <laughs> down, kishibashi on the radio for like the last ten years. And so when I started to like process this music, that I mean, some of it is still joyful, but there's this. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, honestly, it's having joy is really what gives you the agency to to deal with this kind of awful thing and to like to become a better person is to to be joyful and to be happy and to be forgiving and and to kind of enrich your life with that kind of emotion is to me the most important thing yeah i mean do you, do you want to talk uh a little bit about sort of the i guess it's like the way that you brought this back to the community like you went and then played some of this music back at heart mountain for the community members there in Wyoming, right? Yeah, we we screened the movie in the last pilgrimage and they were they were very happy and you know, they they are like our family. So we have a lot of friends there and even on in the West Coast and in Chicago as well. And so I I think it's it's a movie, you know, ultimately for it's for me, it's for them, the community, but it's also for everybody else. It's like spreading the message of uh this history and even like and and also empowering like minorities to like or Asian people you know to look at this and be like oh this is kind of like what I'm going through right now cool hope you enjoyed that conversation with the musician Kishibashi check out the rest of their music too it's so good and also check out the full episode just search KQED forum Kishibashi on your favorite podcast app and that's all for forum in focus the week's most compelling conversations and concerts in under 30 minutes thanks for listening Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.